Please take your Bibles and open with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And if you are able, please stand and honor the reading of God's holy word. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. For no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Pray with me, please. Lord, this is your word, and we are excited as we come to approach it. It is good and right and true. It is infallible and inerrant. It flows from the very heart of God, from the very mouth of God, for it is God-breathed. Lord, you said in your word, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, Lord, unclog our ears that we might receive it with gladness. Yet you also taught us in James not to be hearers only, but doers of your word. So, Father, may the words that we hear affect our lives. Holy Spirit, use the scriptures, we pray, that we might walk in a manner worthy of your gospel. Bless this time. If there's one here who doesn't know Jesus, I pray for that one today. Maybe he or she has come to church for a long time, maybe for weeks, months, and years, but they've never trusted you. May today be the day of salvation, we pray. And for believers, may we be more conformed to thy image, to love you more, to serve you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Opposition. You know, it's a word that a lot of people don't like. Opposition. You know, the world of sports gives us a pretty clear understanding of what opposition means. Even today, all across America, there's going to be NFL teams that line up that oppose each other. And when those teams line up, they're going to line up facing opposing directions. One's going to be looking one way and one's going to be looking the other. They're going to wear a different color of uniforms. Each team is going to try to stop the other. As some of you know, I was a defensive coordinator for years, and I would spend a lot of time figuring out how I could oppose the other offensive coordinator's plan. You know, even last Sunday, if you watched um, Dallas and Atlanta, did you watch that, anybody? Those two teams were in so much opposition that their owners wouldn't even shake hands. One stayed on one side, one stayed on the other. They were in direct 
opposition even last week. Well, beloved, I mentioned opposition because in the book of 1 John, I want you to know that that's a major, major theme. Do you realize that even through the portion that we've covered until now, John has given us at least three major points of opposition in the book of 1 John. One of them is found back in chapter 1, verse 5. It's the opposition between darkness and light. John said it this way, that Christians can't walk in darkness and live in the light at the same time. In other words, if you say you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you say you know the light of the world, you can't live a life that is in constant darkness in the, in the mix of sin and continual sin all the time. That's what he says. But those two things are opposed, darkness and light. In chapter 2, verse 9, he picks up another opposition. He says, loving your brother opposes hating your brother. That you can't say you're in the light, that, that you love God, but you hate those around you. Because God says, as I have loved you, you go out and love one another. So loving God and or loving your brother and hating your brother are in direct opposition. We saw another one in chapter 2 when John talked about loving the world and the things that are in the world. And he said the opposition is that loving the world opposes loving the Father. In fact, John made his conclusion in chapter 2 and said, said it this way. He says, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So over and over, John is talking about these oppositions, these things that are mutually exclusive. And as we pick up this text today, as we move forward in chapter 3, we see John's not finished. That he continues to give us this theme of opposition in the Christian life because today John picks up another topic. And it's the topic of sin. And John teaches us that sin opposes several areas of Christianity. That just as light opposes darkness, just as love opposes hate, John says that sin opposes at least three areas of the Christian life. And that's how our text, our outline is going to break down today. That sin is an opposition to at least three areas of the Christian life. Number one, John teaches us that sin opposes God's standards. We're going to see that in verse 4. Number two, sin opposes the life and the work of Jesus Christ. That's found in verse 5. And number three, sin opposes Christian character. That's verses 6 through 10. So today, again, one more time, sin opposes God's standards. Sin opposes the life work of Jesus. And finally, sin opposes Christian character. Look back at verse 4 for our first point, that sin opposes God's standards. Verse 4 says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. i got to tell you a little story real quick. This is a story about my six-year-old Jack. He's not in here. He's at Children's Church, so he won't hear it. Now, he knows I tell this story all the time. 
It's about a year and a half ago, we were sitting in worship listening to the sermon. Jack was, he, I think he had just turned five. And um, Jack made it, about that time, Jack made it about 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and he usually had to go to the bathroom around the 45, 50-minute mark. So the, the, the pastor who was preaching that day, had, he had made it through the, the first half, two-thirds of his sermon, and then Jack had to go to the bathroom. So I took him out to the bathroom, and he, after he went to the bathroom, there was a bench there. We were sitting on the bench, and the pastor that day had been preaching on sin. So I just took the opportunity. I said, Jack, have you been listening to the pastor this morning? He said, yes, Daddy, I've been listening to the pastor. He says, the pastor's preaching on sin. I said, I said uh, Jack, do you know what sin is? He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> he goes, I know what sin is. Sin, sin's when you do something wrong. It's when you do something bad. And I looked Jack right in the eyes, and I said, Jack, are you a sinner? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and then he looked me right in the eye and goes, stupid. That's a sin. <laughs> and I was thankful that, I mean, I, I laughed that day, but I was thankful that day because, number one, Jack knew what sin was. He knew it was something against God when you do something bad. And he also knew that he was a sinner. So I, I kind of rejoiced in that, as funny as it was. But today, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this topic of sin. And the Bible defines what sin is right here in chapter four, or, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. It says, sin is lawlessness. When we study our catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it also asks the question, what is sin? Is number 14 of the catechism. And here's the answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So we see from the Bible and even from the catechism, sin is defined by comparing it to an ultimate standard. And that standard is the law of God. This text says that sin is lawlessness. Now, when we think about the law of God, what do we think about? We think about the Old Testament, don't we? Particularly the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the law that was written down by Moses. We know that law was crystallized in Exodus chapter 20 when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And the Old Testament writers, even after the Pentateuch was written, had so much to say about the law of God, specifically the Psalms. I'm going to give you a memory clue here. There's three Psalms, three main Psalms that talk about the law of God. You ready? Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. Now, being a math guy, look at those numbers. You have the 1 and you have the 19. If you take the 1 and you slide it up against the 19, what do you get? 119. There's your memory clue, okay? What three Psalms talk about the law of God? 119 and 119. Let's look at the one in the middle, 19. It's the one Lad read just a moment ago. Psalm 19 declares to us God's view of his own law. Let me remind you of some things that, some descriptions that the psalmist put in Psalm 19 concerning God's law. He said that God's law was perfect. 
It made the simple wise. It was right. It was pure. It was true. Perfect. Makes you wise. Right, pure, true. Those are the way God describes His law. And why does God describe His law in those ways? It's because God is also those ways. The author of the law, God is also perfect and right. God is also pure and true. He is completely holy. So when the Bible chooses to define to us what sin is, John chooses, or excuse me, the Bible chooses, and John chooses by writing the Bible, John chooses to define sin by comparing it to God's highest standard which, of course, is his law. That's why John here in this text says, sin is lawlessness. Do you see the opposition? Sin goes against the law of God. It opposes God's standard. What does that mean? That means if God's law is perfect, sin is imperfect. If God's law makes you wise then sin will make you a fool. If God's law is right, then sin is wrong. Yes, this pastor is proclaiming in a postmodern world something called right and wrong. It's because God proclaims right and wrong. If God's word is pure, that means sin is that which is defiled, rotten, and unclean. If God's word is indeed true, as Psalm 19 says it is, That means everything about sin is false. And it's because sin opposes the law of God. It's antithetical to it. It goes against it. One commentator says it this way, sin is the deliberate rejection of the perfect standard of God. So number one, see that sin opposes God's standard of His law. Number two today, The Bible says that sin opposes the life work of Jesus. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, as we get into verse 5, we need to step back and make sure we understand something. We're entering now the doctrine of Christ, what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ his person, and his work. So what does the Bible say? First of all, it says that he's God, just like we talked about with the children. Jesus is fully God. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That the fullness of the deity was in Jesus Christ. And we read the Gospels and we see that illustrated. For Jesus made the blind man see, and only God could do that. Jesus healed the man's hand on the Sabbath. Only God could do that. Jesus took two fish and five loaves and fed 5,000 people. Jesus made a dead man come out of the grave. Only God could do that. He's fully God. But he's also fully man. The Christmas story teaches us that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. And as we read the Word of God, it teaches us that Jesus 
went through all the miseries of this life, that he cried at Lazarus' tomb, that he was hungry after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. He was thirsty. That he was tired and needed to go to sleep and take a nap on that boat in Mark chapter 4. That he felt the pain of nails in his hands and nails in his feet. He was a man of sorrows. He was truly a man. And the Bible also says that he was tempted. Just like you are. Just like I am. Every single day. Yet Jesus never sinned. We know that Satan specifically tempted him three times when he didn't have food and water. We know that every day he was tempted just like you and I are. But here's the difference. You see, in the face of temptation, you and I sin. We sin often, but Jesus, the Bible says, never sinned. As Lad read a moment ago from Hebrews, he's holy, he's innocent, unstained. That he is tempted like we are, yet without sin. Peter says it this way, he was like a lamb without spot or blemish. He was perfect. You see, you and I, we have all broken the law of God, but not Jesus. Jesus never broke the law of God. And because He's never sinned, He was perfect. That's what makes Jesus the right one to be the substitute to take away sin forever. Did you see that phrase in verse 5? Look at it. Verse 5. We know that He appeared to take away sin. Sins. Think through this with me. Even though sin is opposed to God's law, and even though sin was opposed to Jesus' life and His work, the Bible says in this text that the reason Jesus came was to take away the thing that opposed Him most. Think about that. Though sin opposed his law and his person and work, he came to deal with the very thing that opposed his law and work the most, and that is sin. And here's how he did it. The Bible says, for you and for me, that we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, haven't we? There is no one righteous, no, not even one, that the wages of our sin is death. But Romans 5.8 comes to all of us and says, but God demonstrates his love towards us in this, that while we're sinners, Christ came and he died for us. You see, in his life, he was fully God. That means everything he did was God doing it. But he was also fully man, meaning that everything he did was a full representation of you and me. And in the face of sin, he never once faltered. Though he was tempted, he never ever sinned. And the Bible says... That he went to the cross. And though we were the ones that opposed him most, the Bible says that he took our sin upon himself, that God made him who had no sin become sin for us. James is going to put a verse on the screen, and I want you to see it because we're going to walk through this right here. This verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It's my favorite verse in the entire Bible. 
And it's what I call the great exchange. We're going to talk through that. Here's what it says. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the great exchange. Here's what that means. That on one side you have a person like yourself or like me, you have a sinner. One who has fallen short of the glory of God. One whose wages is eternal death. But on this side, you have a Savior. And His name is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was tempted just like that person was. But He never sinned. Not once. In fact, He was fully and completely righteous. And here's what the Bible says. Maybe it's something you've heard your whole life. That the sins that belong to this person, me and you, were put on Jesus. They were imputed. They were charged to his account. In other words, Jesus died for your sins. But that's not where the gospel stops. That's not where that verse stops. Because the Bible says to us that the righteousness that Jesus Christ merited, the righteousness that he has, can be imputed to our lives that you and I might be declared righteous by God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ being charged to our lives. You see, God made him who had no sin to be sin. How did he do that? He charged our sins to Jesus so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see how Jesus took the thing that opposed his law, that opposed his life and his work, he took that thing and he conquered it. He conquered it. He conquered his opposition by his life work on the cross. And when he died for your sins, he died with them, but he rose without them. He defeated them. He gives us victory through his life work. Praise God for what Jesus has done for us. So maybe now up to this point in the sermon, you might be saying, Adam, <laughs> hey, everything that you've mentioned is great, but I already knew that. It's just review. You might say, Adam, I know sin's opposed to God's law. I know sin is opposed to the life work of Jesus Christ. In fact, I've repented and trusted Jesus as my Savior. So what does this text have to do with me? Beloved, if that's you today, I want us to take a hard look at the last point of this sermon. And it's that sin is opposed to Christian character. Look again with me at verses 6 through 10. Here's what the Bible says to Christians. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, do not let... Or let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love 
his brother. So let's back up and see where we've already been and where that takes us. First of all, we ask this question, or if we make this statement, if we really believe that sin is opposed to God's law, yet we're called to hide God's law in our hearts, if we really believe that sin is opposed to the life work of Jesus, yet we know that God's goal for us is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, then how can we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, allow continual and habitual sin to be a practice in our lives? That's what this text is asking. How can we as believers who have been called to be conformed to His image simply allow this habitual, continual sin in our lives? One commentator says it this way, it's absolutely inconsistent with Jesus' redeeming work on the cross for anyone who claims to be a Christian and yet continually and habitually be involved in sin. Now, let me make sure you know what I'm not saying. <laughs> I don't think it's what the Bible's saying. It's not saying that we're going to be perfect in this life. In fact, the Lord knows even today, I have fallen short of God's glory many times already today. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 8 of this book, God says perfection is something that can never, ever happen in the Christian life. But I think what this text is saying is that for Christians, once they know Jesus, there's going to be a change. As Lad read a few moments ago from 2 Corinthians 5, 15, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That he's going to have a desire to hate his sin and to grow in his relationship with Jesus. That there will be a mature growth in grace. A sanctifying process. I remember my old seminary professor used to say it this way. He'd tell all the students, he says, you boys need to preach your sanctification just as much as you preach your justification. You, we preach all the time, come to Christ, right? But the Bible says we need to focus on following hard after Christ just as much. That's what this text is saying. Verse 6, again, look at it one more time. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Beloved, sanctification is this process where God enables us by his grace to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And John, it's very interesting, ends with a, with a great example. It's a father-son example. He talks about God putting his seed in us and, and that Christians are the children of God. You remember a couple weeks ago we looked at the benefits of being a child of God? We looked at chapter 3, verse 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And we learned all the benefits of being a child. Well, this text here says that God has put his seed in us and that he is our father. And that His goodness, His grace should be reflected in His children. If you're a father here today, I'm a dad. If you're a father here today, would we not hope that we live our lives in such a way 
that there's something about us that will be modeled in our children. Wouldn't that be one of our goals? For our children to say, hey, I want to be like my father. He has given me a great example of how to live my life. In the same way, that's what this text is saying. It's saying that God is our Father. His seed is in us. Therefore, we should desire to be like Him in all that we do. We should say things like, we want to be holy. Not because the pastor told me to be holy or my, or, or my teacher told me to be holy. We should want to be holy because God is holy. Our Father is holy. We should say things like, whatever happens, we're going to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're going to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ because He's our Father. His seed is in us. We're going to reflect Christian character. Why? Because this text says sin is opposed. It's opposed to Christian character. If sin is opposed to God's law, if it's opposed to the life work of Jesus, why would we think that it wouldn't also be opposed to Christian character? Why would we think that continual or habitual sin would be okay in the lives of believers? This text is calling us to sanctification. Beloved, as we close here today, do you see the oppositions? Like light is opposed to darkness, like love is opposed to hate, sin is opposed to His law, God's law, the person and work of Christ and Christian character. But isn't it amazing that Jesus took that which opposed Him and His law the most, came down to this earth as a man without ceasing to be God. And as that verse said, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God And now he's called all of us to live obediently and faithfully as children of God. Let's ask these questions of ourselves. Are we loving the things of God more every day? Is it easy for us to live our lives in habitual sin? Are we truly being sanctified? Do we understand that God is our Father And as any father would want his traits reflected in his children, God has called us to be holy for he indeed is holy. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus for salvation, maybe today's the first day you've ever heard the gospel. Maybe you have sat on a church pew for years and years. Do you understand that Jesus died for your sin? Do you understand that you can know him today? If you walked in here without him, you can walk out of here with him. Come to Him, repenting of your sin, believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And for Christians, let us rejoice in that message, right? Let us rejoice in what Christ has done for us and continue to follow hard after Him all of our days. Pray with me, please.